We're reading in 1 Kings chapter 19. I'm just going to read the first verse, and then I'm going to read the next 17 verses. (laughs) Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him And he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, He wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escaped from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, and all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful that you are a God of all power. You have power over all hearts and all minds and all 
elements of this world and over space and over the entire universe. You know every mystery. God, we can put our faith and trust in you. You are from everlasting to everlasting. You are the Alpha and the Omega. You have all power. So God, I pray that you would work in our hearts, that you would help us, God, to have the wisdom to fear you, to submit our hearts to you, to bend the knees of our hearts and minds and souls, to worship you and to give you praise and to submit to your authority. God, work in our hearts with your Holy Spirit through your word as we hear the preaching of your word. God, I pray that it would be preaching with power, not the power of man's wisdom or of philosophy or of logic, but the power of your word through your Holy Spirit. We ask this in the precious name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. We're in the middle of a series on, uh, I don't know if it's on Elijah or Ahab, but certainly on both of them in the book of First Kings. And we're picking up in sort of the middle of that series. And so if you're visiting with us, that's where we are and that's what we're doing. As we come to this text in uh, chapter 19, it's uh, a fairly familiar story. And uh, I think it's a story in which we have looked at it, I think, in ways that um, aren't always helpful. There's a lot of clues in the text uh, um, and around chapter uh, 19 that um, suggest maybe there's another way of thinking about Elijah's actions. And I wonder um, if you have ever been misunderstood. If you've ever been... Um, uh, categorized in a way that does not truly reflect what you have done or who you are. Your words or your actions have been taken and twisted and and, uh, misinterpreted and maybe even mistaken. And somebody suggests something about us that is just not right and yet people seem to jump on the bandwagon about it. Wrong conclusions are arrived at and I think that's what's happened um, in this chapter with regarding Elijah. And I wonder if um, such a thing happens, if Elijah would turn over in his grave, although he's not in his grave, we know he's in heaven because he appeared on the Mount of Transfiguration. But if he'd look down and say, you guys don't got it right about me. I think in this instance, we've come to think about Elijah that we meet in chapter 19 is very different from the Elijah that we met in chapter 18. Uh, Chapter 18 was this incredible response of God to the prayer of Elijah. And I think sometimes if we think about it and we ask ourselves, well, what did Elijah pray? I think many of us would respond, well, he prayed for fire from heaven. Well, that's not what Elijah prayed for, actually. He didn't pray for fire from heaven. In verse uh, 37 of chapter 18, this is what actually Elijah prayed. After he had set up the altar with the bull on it, he says, answer me, O Lord, answer me. That this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Two requests, two things that Elijah prayed. The first was that this people might know that you, O Lord, are God. And we know that that request was answered because out of heaven, God sent fire. And that fire came down and it consumed the sacrifice, it consumed the altar, it consumed the stones, it consumed the water, it turned everything into dust. And we understand there that God answered that first request that he show himself or that they know he's God by sending fire. The second request that Elijah prayed though was this, that you would turn their hearts back, God. 
Another version says, and that you are turning their hearts back again, or that you are winning their hearts back. Elijah wanted to see God working in the hard-heartedness and the stiff-neckedness of these people and turn them back towards God. He wanted God to redirect their focus, to redirect their trust, to turn their confidence back in towards him. And we say, well, what was the result of that prayer request? It wasn't answered. Israel's hearts had not been turned back. Ahab's heart had not been softened by the rain and by Carmel. And Jezebel's heart had not been turned back. They were as stiff-necked and as hard-hearted as they had been before God acted. This part of Elijah's prayer had not been answered. And so as we begin to look at Elijah, I don't think that he was acting out of fear. I think he was disheartened. He was discouraged by the lack of response to people in turning their hearts back towards God. As we begin the text, we see that Elijah or Ahab comes and he talks to his wife Jezebel and he tells Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. It's fascinating to me that as Ahab is recounting this to his wife, his focus is not on anything that God has done, but it's solely upon what Elijah has done. Look at all the prophets that he has killed. There's no mention of the rain that God had sent. There's no mention of, uh, of, of even necessarily the fire that came from heaven. Ahab is not concerned with God. His trouble is with Elijah. Ahab doesn't attribute anything to God. Not even the rain. And so I think it reflects his heart has not been changed. He just witnessed incredible things. And his heart had not been turned back to God. Then we read of Jezebel. In verse 2 it says, Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more so, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. You begin to get a sense in this chapter, and we'll find it also when we get to Naboth's vineyard, who wears the pants in this palace. Ahab comes home with the news of the day, and Jezebel reacts to him uh, as if to say, If you're not going to do anything about this, Ahab, I will. And as the story unfolds, it becomes clear that Ahab has little control over his wife and her actions. It's clear that Jezebel's heart is still hard as a rock. She has heard and smelt and felt the rain that God had just sent. She had heard about the showdown at Carmel and the fire that had come down from heaven. And yet she's still unwilling to concede defeat. Notice what she says. May the gods do to me... And more also. And I think to myself, what gods? Her gods have just been put to shame. Her gods have just been shown to be powerless. Her gods have just been, been, been absolutely left wanting. All the prophets of her gods have been put to death. And as they stood on this mountain, as they waited for her gods to respond, the Bible says there was no sound, there was no answer. And nobody paid attention. And so even though the gods of, Is of Jezebel are, are, are wiped out, they're non-existent, she's still trusting them. She's still living in fear of them. She's still believing that if she doesn't do something to Elijah, that her gods are going to do something to her. Her heart has not been changed by anything that God has done. And so then we read, then... Elijah was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, 
which belongs to Judah, and left his servants there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, Is it enough now, O Lord? Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. The overwhelming view of people at this point on this text is that Elijah caves in. That the weakness and the humanness of Elijah now rises to the surface. He has a breakdown. He's not afraid of men, but all of a sudden he's afraid of this woman, Jezebel. And the commentators chastise him. They vilify him. They dump on him. He's charged with disobedience and with not listening to God. And I think right off the bat, one of the reasons is, is because many look at this text through their own personal point of view, through a human perspective, rather than through the eyes of a prophet and through the eyes of prophets. But let me ask you this. Does this fit with the picture of Elijah that we've got in verses chapter 17 and 18? Does this fit with an Elijah who stepped up before Ahab out of nowhere and said, God has said there's going to be no dew and no rain until he changes or gives a different word. Does this fit with an Elijah who obeyed God and went to live in the heart of Baal country? Does this fit with an Elijah who came out to meet Obadiah and Obadiah told him that Ahab was looking for him to kill him and, and Elijah says, well, I will go and meet him today. Tell him I'm coming. Does this fit with an Elijah who stands up in Mount Carmel by himself in front of 850 prophets and stands for God? Does this fit with, with, with a man who has that kind of confidence? How is it that one who has experienced the protection and the provision of God in such clear ways is now suddenly afraid of Jezebel? I understand he's tired. And if you've ever exerted yourself intellectually or physically or emotionally, you understand the fatigue that, that settles into your heart and into your life. And you know that they often say that the most dangerous times in a per person's life is when they reach a goal, when they reach the summit of a mountain and they let down their guard, when they, when they, when they accomplish a great feat and then there's the hours after the most dangerous time. I understand that sort of stuff. I get that Elijah is hungry and thirsty and tired. He's, he didn't go and eat with uh, Ahab, he went up to the mountain to pray. And he, we find about him that he says, he gives a reason why he's a little bit um, uh, discouraged. He says, for I'm no better than my father's. He's realized that he's been no more effective in turning the hearts of the people away from their sinfulness towards God than any of the prophets that had come before him. And this is part of his prayer. He had prayed that God would turn the hearts of the people back to God. And nothing has happened. As I begin to tally it up in my head, I think, well, if Elijah's not afraid, he's discouraged. Some of you know this. I understand this. You pour your heart into God's work, and most often you can deal with the, with the setbacks or with the lack of forward progress. But every once in a while, there's a situation or circumstance that comes along your way, comes across your plate, and you put great energy into it. You, put, you, 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 you pray, you work, you talk, you counsel, you help, and God moves and God acts, and you think you've made progress. And then you hear the next day that they've gone back to, as, as they say, the pig goes back to its... Uh, uh, a mud pie and the dog goes back to his vomit you think everything I've done is for nothing nothing has changed there's been no turnaround everything is regressed rather than progress 
I think he's not afraid. He's defeated. He says, I've been no more successful than any of the prophets that came before me. I thought I would be different. I thought, God, you would use me. I thought, God, we were making progress here. I thought the people were just about to turn. And there's no turning. Their hearts are still hard. He's not afraid. I think he believes maybe he's failed. Look at the great victory on Carmel. God had spoke clearly by answer and by fire. You can see the mud that had been tracked into the palace still that God had clearly sent rain, but nothing had changed. Nobody's heart had turned. I don't think he's afraid. I think maybe he's fearful. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. He knows that God is a jealous God. He says as much in here. He knows the history of Israel and the discipline of God that had fallen on them for repeated idolatry. Just possibly, Elijah is afraid for the people. He's afraid that God might act towards them as he threatened to do uh, when they uh, committed idolatry with the golden calf years earlier at Horab. Remember Jesus as he looked out over Jerusalem Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you are not willing to come. Think about this for a moment. Have you ever felt that you were really, really close to seeing your spouse turn to the Lord? Or maybe a child or a grandchild or a neighbor or a friend that you've been sharing the gospel with. And as you've been sharing with them, some incredible things have happened in their life. Some circumstances that, that could only be explained by God has acted and God has worked in their life to di display his power and his glory and his might to them. And rather than them turning to God, they become harder in their hearts. Are you afraid when that happens? Or are you discouraged? I think this is what's going on in Elijah's heart. He's not afraid. He's discouraged that there's no sign of softening in Jezebel or in the people. Come back to the text in verse 3. And one of the difficulties, it says, Then he was afraid and he arose and he ran for his life. Normally, I don't take a lot of time on textual issues, but I think it matters here because there's something going on in the text that, that, that many of us uh, wouldn't know about or that our translations don't put in the footnote. But regarding that first verb in verse 3, there are two textual possibilities. In other words, there's two different verbs that could be used. There's, there's two manuscript trails, so to speak. And one of the manuscript trails uses the word to see. And another manuscript trail uses the word to be afraid. If you've got a King James Version or an ASV, the sentence is translated. And when he saw that, he arose and he went for his life. The majority of Hebrew manuscripts have the word to see here, or the verb to see. The minority of Hebrew manuscripts have the word to fear, which the Greek translation of the Old Testament follows. 
you know that textual changes and challenges are, are not uncommon and they're, they're not anything to be afraid of. They happen as people copy down text or as they, they make decisions about the text that, 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 that are the wrong kinds of decisions. I suspect here that there's been some decisions made which we don't have time or I don't have time to explain to you but there's some decisions made that some of them, the copyists, chose the word to fear rather than the word to see. And when you have the tense of this particular verb, they almost look identical, the Hebrew words. I believe the best way to translate verse 3 is that when he saw, he arose and ran from his life. So if it is he saw, well, what did he see? I think he saw the hardness of Jezebel's heart. He saw that there was no change in her. There was no softening in her. There was no movement towards God. He had prayed that God would turn her heart, but she had not turned her heart at all. In fact, she was steadfast in her rebellion. And so he took her threat seriously, and he left. Think about this. If God had successfully hidden Elijah for over three years, if God had successfully hidden a hundred prophets for a number of years, all those under the nose of Jezebel, does it make sense that Elijah would react out of fear that he was depressed and, 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 and that he just had a meltdown and he took off when she threatened his life? Notice the journey that he makes. And I added a little map in your bulletins for, for you to follow. I, th I thought it's easier for you to have it in your hands. But it says, first of all, he left from Jezreel and he went down to Beersheba. Beersheba is at the bottom of Judah. It's about as far as you can go in Judah without going outside the border of Judah. That's about 160 kilometers away from Jezreel. It's almost certain that no Israelite king or certainly a foreign Israelite queen would go into Judean territory to seek Elijah. And then it says that he also then went a full day's journey into the wilderness. And then if you flip over and look at the colored map, the blue map, you see that then he was told by the angel to go to Horab. That's another 315 kilometers. So he goes almost 470 kilometers away from Jezreel because he's afraid? No, I, I think there's a mission that he's on. And I'll explain that mission. When he arrives in the wilderness, he says he sat down under a juniper tree and he prays that he might die. Why? He's had enough. He asked that he might die. He's not afraid of death. He's certainly willing for God to take his life, so he's not fearful of death. He wanted it to be true that the only one who would ever take his life would be God, but he wanted to die again because of a perceived failure. I'm no better than my father's. They didn't turn the hearts of Israel back to God. I haven't been able to turn the hearts of Israel back to God. It's better, God, you take my life. So here we find Elijah exhausted, troubled, and alive in the middle of the desert. I love the tone of the next three verses because it, it seems to suggest the path that we're on, that God's not angry with Elijah. God's not chastising Elijah. Elijah is discouraged by the absence of the work of God in changing these hard hearts. 
The people have seen the fire of God. They have felt the rain of God, and yet their hearts are still unchanged. And he's so distressed by the hardening of the people of God. He's full of sorrow that his renewal efforts had failed. It's as though he said, I've had enough. Sometimes the work of the Lord is that disheartening. Sometimes we do literally just throw our hands up in the air and say, I've had enough. I'm not doing this again. I'm not spending myself for this again. And how do we see God treat him? First is the gift of sleep. I wanted to spend a whole message on sleep. <laughs> I've got narcolepsy, sorry. The Bible says a lot about sleep. I really think we've, we've left this out from Christian thinking. There's a theology of sleep in the Bible. But I want to say at least this much. Even in the midst of the complexity of sleep, one of the simple truths behind sleep is this spiritual reality that sleep is a gift of God. That God is the one that gives the gift of sleep and God is the one that withholds sleep. Now it's a lot more complex than that I get, but I want to boil it down to just a very simple thing right now for this text. God gives Elijah the gift of sleep. What an amazing, compassionate, sweet God. Elijah, you've done a lot. Just rest. <laughs> he goes to sleep. I love that. The second thing, the gift of nourishment. Get up and eat. Twice. Notice here how God provides for our daily needs. We've seen this now, and I hope you're getting the picture. I've been driving it home to us. God used ravens to provide bread and meat. God used a widow to provide bread and water. God used his servant Obadiah to provide bread and water. And now God uses his angel to provide bread and water. Loved ones, the ability of God to meet your needs far surpasses anything you might ever imagine. And when you pray, our Father who art in heaven, give us this day our daily bread. Expect the miraculous. Expect the extraordinary and know that God cares about your daily needs. The third gift here is the gift of touch. The gift of touch. Twice the angel touches him. It seems so simple and it, it seems almost unworthy of comment, but I don't think there's any throwaway words in the scripture. Our bodies crave touch. They really do. There's something wonderful about a touch on the shoulder, a hand on the arm, a snuggle up next to you just to feel the warmth of another human body that just gives assurance, it gives comfort, it calms, it sets us at ease. That's sweet. God gives him sleep. God wakes him up with a touch. God gives him bread and water and then he does it all over again. And then he gives him the gift of direction. This is why I don't think Elijah is 
lost his marbles and he's down here because he's just out of his wits. God gives him direction now and he says, okay, keep going. And I want you to go to Horeb, another 315 kilometers from where you are through mountainous country. I will protect you. I will preserve you. I will help you go miraculously on this bread and water for those 40 40 days and 40 nights. There's no rebuke. There's no chastisement. Only the sweet, gentle touch of a compassionate God. You've come a long way, Elijah, but you've got a long way to go yet. I think these are sometimes what most is needed by someone who's discouraged. Thirdly, we have, we have Elijah at Mount Horeb. We don't have a lot of time to stay here, which is probably where a lot of you wish we had stayed for most of the time, but I want you to know there's a line here in Scripture. And this line goes back all the way to Moses, who we first find at Mount Horeb after the people of Israel had prostituted themselves before the golden calf. And Moses had come down from the mountain to find them celebrating and dancing and prostituting themselves before this thing. And he goes back up to Horeb to the top of the mountain and he spends 40 days and 40 nights there interceding on behalf of the people. So that's where this line starts. It starts at Horeb with Moses and it makes its way now to Elijah who's on the same mountain. And Elijah is now praying before God and he's making an accusation against the people. And then we find that that line also extends into the New Testament to the Mount of Transfiguration. When Jesus is on the mountain and and God speaks to him and God comes down to him and who visits with him but Elijah and Moses. I think it's critical to know that this is a Moses who interceded. This is Elijah who accused and they're talking to Christ before he goes to the cross on our behalf. And then the line also extends to Romans chapter 11. You can look at those things on your own. Some suggest that Elijah was in the same cave that Moses was in. I don't know how they know that. Um, it could be, could not be. I don't think it really matters. As I said, though Moses went to Horeb to intercede for Israel, Elijah is there to bring an accusation against them. Elijah is the beginning of a long line of prophets who would charge God's people with breaking his covenant and then they would pronounce God's judgment on them. This is repeated twice in this text, in verse 10 and in verse 14. In the middle of that, there's a conversation between God and Elijah. It begins with this invitation to talk. What are you doing here, Elijah? Some people look at that and they say, well, God is mad at him. Like, what are you doing here? Go back home. But after all, wasn't it God that had sent Elijah to Horeb? And sometimes people come to your door and, and, and when they're at your door, you don't say, what are you doing here? Go back home. What do you want? What are you doing here? Tell me, what's going on? What are you thinking? I think this is an invitation of God to, for Elijah to speak. What are you doing here, Elijah? Tell me, what's on your heart? What's on your mind? Let me hear what you're thinking. And what does Elijah say to him? He says, I've been engaged in fighting for you. But look, the Israelites, they've abandoned your covenant. They've torn down your altars. They've killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left, and they're looking for me now to take my life. What's going on here? Elijah is upset for God's sake. He's upset for God's cause. 
He's raising covenant issues before God. The name of God is at stake here. And we pray, hallowed be your name. Do you know what that means when we pray that in the Lord's Prayer? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. This is what we're saying. God, your name is being maligned in the place that I work. Your name is being maligned when I go to family dinners and nobody talks about you. Your name is being maligned in my school. Father, don't let that happen anymore. This is what is going through Elijah's heart. He's, he's, he's there for God's honor. He's there for God's name. He's saying, God, they're not turning. Look at what they're doing here. Do we ever share this kind of compassion that Elijah has? See, conformity is not an option. Elijah is not willing to give up and go the way of all the people. No, he's going to stand. If he's the only one left standing, he's going to stand for God. Do we really care about the fidelity of the church and its doctrine and its profession of faith? Are we ever upset for God's sake? Do we ever get depressed for God's sake? Is it our passion that God's name be hallowed in the places that we go in during every week? And then God speaks to him. One of the keys to these verses is the number of times you have a reference to God speaking or the word of the Lord or the voice of God. And notice that God doesn't speak in the wind. He doesn't speak in an earthquake. He doesn't speak in fire. And God's not a nature God. He rules over nature. Nature obeys his commands. Nature does his bidding. But God is found in his word, in his voice. The still, small whisper of God. It's the voice that directs us to the presence of God. The emphasis here is on the voice of God and the word of God. The point, I think, is simply this, that we encounter God in his word. Be content, loved ones, with the gentle whisper of the word of God. There are so many voices competing out there, yelling, screaming, great miracles, great promise, but they're nothing to do with the word of God. We come to the word and we find the gentle, sweet still voice of God speak to us. And then finally, I think this continues to affirm what God is doing in Elijah's life and that Elijah was there with accusation. Once again, God steps in and he directs the steps of Elijah. Elijah doesn't protest. See, Elijah is a man that obeys God. He expresses no apprehension. He, prays. He, he obeys. God says, when you arrive, arrive where? Arrive in Damascus. That means he has to go back and he has got to go through Samaria to get to Damascus. He's got to go through Jezebel country. The woman who's looking for him to kill him. And he obeys. He just goes. I don't think he's afraid of Jezebel. A couple of noticings here. Do you find any rebuke of God in these verses? I can't find a single rebuke of God. I can't find a disappointment of God with, Jer with Elijah. I can't find any word that would lead me to believe that Elijah has done anything but represented God well. Notice also what God says. He says, you go back and I want you to anoint three people. I want you to anoint Haziel, Jehu, and Elisha. Why? Because they're going to be my instruments of punishment 
on the hard-heartedness and the rebellion of my people. It's as if God says to Elijah, you're absolutely right, Elijah. My people have abandoned my covenant. My people have broken down my altars. My people have killed the prophets. And therefore, I am going to bring judgment on them. Am I going to bring it through these three individuals? You're absolutely right, Elijah. I agree with your assessment. And your charges are true. And then he says to him, I'm going to give you help. I'm going to give you another servant, Elisha. And for a number of years, we don't know how long Elisha served Elijah. And then we find this a beautiful reference here that God is going to provide or preserve. It says, your God says to Elijah, I have 7,000 who have not bowed or kissed. They've not bowed down to Baal and they've not kissed him. I'm not sure if this number is meant to be literal or symbolic. Paul uses this particular text here as an instance of and an argument for the grace of God and the fact that God will preserve a remnant even amongst rebellion. In the midst of disobedience and defiant, God will preserve a remnant. You ever wonder that about yourself if you're a child of God today? Why has God set his love and mercy on me? Why does God persevere with me? Why does, not, why does God not give up on me? Why does he hold me fast? Maybe it's because we're his son and his daughter. We're part of his remnant. And as John says, nobody will snatch you out of his hand. I wonder if in part this is the Old Testament version of Jesus' words in Matthew. Where Jesus says, I tell you, Peter, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I don't know who these 7,000 people were. But there were amongst Israel that hard-hearted, stubborn people. 7,000 who God had set aside, who had not bowed the knee, who had not kissed Baal, whose hearts were not hard toward him, whose necks were not stiff toward him, but they were soft and they were worshipers of God. A great multitude, an incredible remnant. Loved ones, you may be the only Christian you're aware of in your workplace. You might be the only Christian that you think is in your school or in your particular class. Maybe in your neighborhood, maybe in the club that you're in. But I want you to know you're not God's only servant. You may feel alone, but you're not alone. And you ought not to despair or be discouraged because God has promised to build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. There's this beautiful picture in the book of Revelation. And we find in the book of Revelation that there are countless people who have followed the beast. And they've taken the mark of the beast on themselves. And John says that God is about to punish those who have followed the beast. But an angel says, listen, before that happens, don't harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. I heard their number of the sealed, 144,000. I looked. Same group. He heard 144,000. He looks. And what does he see? A great multitude that no one could number. 
from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and onto the Lamb. You might feel like you're the only one, but there is a great multitude that God has sealed and set aside that nobody can number that will be before his throne. God will always have his people. And not the likes of Jezebel, nor the gates of hell, nor anything present, nor anything future can destroy God's church. There is an infectious assurance, a defiant certainty, a, a holy dogmatism about this text that keeps us on our feet and keeps us standing for God. Never, ever think you are God's last hope. Never think that you are God's only hope. And never think that you are the center of God's plan. Christ is the bomb of Gilead. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. The war to end all wars was not fought on Carmel. It wasn't fought at Horeb. It was fought on a hill called Golgotha. 2,000 plus years ago, where the hosts of darkness and death itself was triumphed over as Christ defeated them in his death, that God brought the punishment of our sins, the chastisement due our disobedience, our desecration of worship, our rejection of his prophets, our rejection of Christ. He brought all of that sin, all of that curse, all of that judgment, and he put it upon his son, Jesus Christ, so that we might be forgiven and cleansed and adopted and made one of his sons or daughters. Jesus was alone in his suffering. Jesus was alone as he prayed. Jesus was alone in his death. He was forsaken by God. And yet Christ never gave in to despair or discouragement. It is through Christ that we stand before God.